I'm Rick Ralph and thanks for joining me, talking garbology, waste and recycling unwrapped. As an industry professional with more than 40 years experience, both internationally and in Australia, my podcast series provides listeners an insight to and conversations with a number of key industry leaders, subject professionals, knowledge experts on a wide range of topics waste and recycling related. Wherever you may be listening, I trust you find my program informative as we explore and unbundle the complex yet interesting subjects of waste management, secondary resource recovery, recycling, and all their endeavours. In August 2019, a decision was made by the Council of Australian Government's COAG to establish a timetable to ban the export of waste paper, plastic, glass and tyres. The intent was to build or is to build Australia's internal capacity to generate and then use these high-valued recycled commodities. In March 2020, COAG agreed to a forward timetable to implement these bans, initially planned to start in July 2020 due to the disruption of COVID-19 the phase ban start dates have been moved out. The export of unprocessed glass will now commence 1 Jan 2021, mixed plastics 1 July 2021, uh, whole used tyres December 2021, looks like 2021 is going to be a very busy year. Single polymer and resins, plastics, we move to 2022, mixed and unsorted paper and cardboard 2024. Since this announcement, the Commonwealth Government has been working in state and territory governments and industry to try and finalise these investment packages and to get the legislation and implement the ban. Legislation is due to be introduced shortly into Parliament, so I thought it was opportune to speak with the team leader leading this work, Kristen Tilley, who's the first Assistant Secretary, Waste and Recycling Task Force at the uh, Federal Department of uh, Environment Protection and Agriculture. Kristen, welcome to my podcast or to this podcast. And uh, for the listeners, perhaps we can start with your important role in this uh, project. Yeah, thanks very much, Rick. Hello, and and, and thanks very much for the invitation to to come on your podcast. Um, I'll get into the task and sort of my role in just a second. Sure. I I did want to make sure, um, just sort of on the record, listeners were aware that Commonwealth Minister Susan Lee took the decision to defer the start of the export ban that only applies to glass only because COAG had agreed the phased-in timetable. Sure. Um, and all of that stays the same with the exception of glass, which was meant to start on 1 July this year, but when we couldn't bring that forward to Parliament in time in terms of legislating that ban, the decision was taken to push that. Yeah, that, uh, that wasn't a, I wasn't clear in that exactly. Yeah. We were actually we've just phased the start. Yeah, and then all the others are in accordance with what COAG agreed, their start times. Yeah. Cool. Your role? Sorry, sorry for that diversion. My role? Um, look, just um, I've been in this job for um, 10 months right on now. I started in late August and I'd agreed to take on that role. That was about late July, but I wasn't starting in that role till the 19th of August. And so it was in that interceding period between accepting the role and starting that the COAG meeting took place on the 9th of August. So you were in the right place at the wrong time. Is that how it works? Something like that, or vice versa, <laughs> one or the other. Um, and uh, the Prime Minister and uh, State and Territory leaders agreed that Australia should ban the export of waste paper, plastic, glass and tyres and asked environment ministers to work up the specifics around the timetable and just how we do that. What, what we did fairly quickly when we realised just um, 
as, as we started to understand what the task was, what the different pieces of work that we'd have to do to get us to a position to provide um, appropriate advice to COAG from, from environment ministers, but equally that the, the coordination and the work around uh, agreeing and negotiating with states and territories, the terms of the ban, and engaging with the industry to make sure it was fit for purpose and supported was pretty large. The, the next thing, we, so, so there was an immediate kind of what do we need to do and then what resources, Commonwealth resources, do we need to bring to bear in terms of staffing and analysis, et cetera. The, so that was sort of the immediate task when I came into the role. The, the next thing that became really obvious, and we were still working through what, were the, what was our time frames to deliver this advice to COAG. Mm-hmm. The, um, the other thing that became re- really obvious very early was all of the levers and all of the analysis was not so much an environment portfolio issue, but it was broader um, portfolio issues, so industry or economics or um, uh, infrastructure, uh, finance and procurement. So, uh, again, lucky for me, a decision was taken fairly early. It must have been about mid-September by this point um, at, you know, sort of the, the head of the Prime Minister's department that um, we would convene a cross-government task force. So we pulled in staff from all of the relevant portfolios in the Commonwealth to bring that expertise, whether it's about industry or procurement or, or, or economics. I think that's a very important point there because for the first time, whilst a lot of people have been quite critical of the federal government missing in action in waste policy, for the first time it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to hear government talking about the industry and business and the economic drivers because that's fundamentally what actually this is about. It's not the environment as a result of that business and other activity investment. That's, that's pretty well my view anyway. Absolutely. And then the ban was for environmental outcomes and objectives, but the impacts and the intervention and the decisions that needed to be made were all in other parts of the economy or, or, the, or the public service. So lucky for me, I get to draw in a, a range of that expertise from across the public service. But then equally, that sort of uh, cross-government approach was taken at the ministerial level as well. So Minister Susan Lee convened the relevant ministers from time to time at the Commonwealth level to make sure we are pulling together advice and uh, a package of potential interventions from the Commonwealth level that were fit for purpose for what the ban would entail. And then slowing that down, we needed to engage at state and territory level and um, bring them along. I mean, all, all leaders had agreed to this, so no states and territories were opposed. Their Premier or Chief Minister had agreed that we should be doing this. But the hows and the whys and the whens, um, everyone will have different views. So there was a, a fair amount of engagement and it was extremely collaborative. We're really happy with just how all states and territories engaged. And without, um, or with some apology, but kind of we were aware that it was the Commonwealth really pushing very hard for a strong outcome and an early timetable that we did a lot of analysis and built a lot of support and, and confidence around states and territories. And then, of course, industry and their views about what was possible and what support might be needed for the ban to be a success. Do you think the federal policy is, is, is cognizant of the individual state policies because you've got various state policy, all different directions? Being a federation, we have so many different state policies. How do we bring those together in, in this dovetail? Can that be, is that possible? It's a really interesting one uh, and, and an issue we had to um, grapple with fairly early because under the Constitution, the Commonwealth can't treat individual states or territories different than others. 
Um, and so from that perspective, the ban had to look and feel the same for every state and territory. We couldn't do special circumstances for a particular state and say, actually, you've got a different timetable gotcha. or a different set of products. It had to be the same um, for every state and territory. Where you can show that flexibility is um, the support mechanisms, um, and I can and I can say because the Prime Minister's announced this already at our plastic summit in March that the the Commonwealth um, had committed to providing funding for infrastructure so that we can build industry capacity to process the waste that will no longer be sending offshore. We can tailor the Commonwealth support to an individual state and territory need. So we're at the point now where you're trying to uh, get the legislative framework um, uh, understood and uh, that'll enter Parliament. Perhaps if we look at the uh, the timetable going forward from now and, and we unpack the items, so we'll start with glass, for instance. We've moved that only, we've only slid that part of the project out for six months, which does make sense because, I mean, the post-COVID here we are doing social distancing several thousand k's away on, on even a podcast. Let's, uh, let's talk at each item by item. Um, we have the bans, uh, and really it's not so much a ban, it's in fact providing an opportunity for Australia to actually start to value our own commodity. I think the, the Australian community uh, are expecting that everyone takes better responsibility and that we do want to actually start to reuse it and, and the linkages with business and industry. Let's unpack each one. Unprocessed glass. What do we mean by unprocessed glass? So um, I always go back to that sort of concept of, for example, because there'll be lots of different examples, but for example, when you put something, a glass in this instance, into your yellow top recycling bin, mm-hmm. at that point that it goes into the bin and there'll be equivalents for construction and equivalents for retail, et cetera, commercial and, and retail or construction and demolition. But to use the household example, that beer bottle, that wine bottle, that jam jar, when you put that into your yellow top bin and it goes off through the system to a MRF and gets sorted, et cetera, according to the ban, that still hasn't been processed from the waste product, that post-consumer waste, to what it could potentially be recycled into. Yes. So what we're saying is at a sort of broad level for all materials, in order to, al- to be allowed to be exported, that waste material, waste glass, waste paper, waste plastic, waste tyres, need to have some further processing domestically, some further value-added processing is a term that that other people use to kind of get the concept, but further processing domestically such that it's manufacturing input ready to take that next step in the sort of circle of recycling or circle. We've sorted it, we've moved it to someone who can actually clean it up, prepare it into a material, and that then material is can go to that value add if necessary. We can't take it straight out of the process. That's right. And so certainly the more advanced the processing, um, the more obvious it is that it's somebody spent time, effort and money in turning this into something that is now a commodity, a product that will be used again. Now, ideally, they're using that domestically into into a new bottle or, or, or what have you, a further um, upcycled, ideally, material. Um, but we will allow under the ban that material to go offshore because it has been turned into a, a ne- it has taken that next step from waste product to value added material that's manufacturing input ready. And I think one of our yeah, and I think one of our greater challenges is, as, and you touched briefly upon there, is to get greater internal use of that material. I mean, 
we're, I, I used to, to coin the phrase, we're great recoverers, but we're lousy recyclers in real terms because we don't use enough of the secondary material to actually do it. So our greatest challenge will be actually at the producer, the front end, to get them to start using this material if it is of a quality and price-wise there's that match. That's right. And so you you asked about sort of give us an example for glass and and some, again, examples would be that that glass is turned into final coloured of a particular specification mm-hmm. that is in a, in a remanufacturing process somewhere. So it's less about us saying glass must be eight millimetres of single colour with 0.5% contamination because if uh, a factory overseas turns it into pool filtration media and their spec for input into that system is actually, we'll take 12 mil um, and we're happy with point, we're, we're happy with 5% contamination and it doesn't matter what colour it is, you can jumble it all together, then that's fine. We're not going to say, no, that doesn't meet our spec. We're going to say there is an overseas, there is a specification that, that is robust and real and is, is used to turn broken glass and beer bottles into pool filtration media. So if we're confident in that specification, then no problem. If you can show that's what you're doing, then we'll allow that to be exported. And so really what we're looking at here is there's an opportunity from from an internalisation of recycling about looking at the statistics on the the documentation of about 300,000 tonnes straight away could come back into front-end manufacture for actually making bottles and packaging other materials. Certainly we can take material, the dirtier material, even if it is cleaned up into road bases, a lot of work and research going there. But there is really no reason why we should be wanting to export any glass unless it was value-added, really, is there? That's correct. And, um, you know, there's another element, and again, the the PM talked about this in his speech at the National Plastic Summit, and just quickly, but um, it's useful to kind of have this as context, that he talked about in, in order for this is just sort of in the lead up to the export the COAG meeting that finalised the, the time frame for the export ban, um, and so he was saying where as I mentioned before we're going to invest with states and territories so it's about investing in the sector to supercharge its capacity to recycle and remanufacture domestically, but then there's also another part which is we have to build demand for those products domestically as well. Yes. So that's not part of the ban. That's kind of um, things that governments of all state, territory and federal will be thinking about how we can drive demand domestically and we hope private sector and others and and consumers do as well. But the ban will be silent on that. So if there is demand overseas for those materials once they've been reprocessed here, sure, a private company can decide to send them offshore to, to make a sale and it to go into recycling overseas. But hopefully, domestically, the demand is rising as well such that they've got great options to keep that in the country. The cultural change that's required, this is a bigger issue. I mean, we're starting with just four items effectively or four streams, but the cultural change that we need in Australia to actually have a a greater focus. I mean, I'm quite intrigued at the debate going on in uh, uh, only recently this week about curbside recycling and everyone up in arms, the fact that... uh, you know they want this. They want to be able to put all their materials out and take it away. And I think the culture. I think Australia needs a cultural change. And it's actually addressing the material, which then creates that pull. We actually demand it and we're onto the materials. If we moved and glass, I think is one of the easier ones. That's correct. Um, we now get into a more complicated one with tyres. Um, let's let's look at tyres. There's a lot of. I mean, that's been around 
for years with the process where we've exported tyres and we've had a lot of unregulation, or sorry, it's regulated, but there's been a lot of stuff slipped through the radar to be unregulated. Tyres, there's a huge opportunity, but there's a challenge with that, isn't there, Kristen? What we have been told is that there is current capacity in Australia right now to process domestically, so into tyre crumb or tyre shred that then goes into playground surfaces or road surfaces or um, noise walls, etc. There is enough capacity right now in Australia to do the reprocessing for the volume of whole tyres, whole used tyres we currently send offshore. That's correct. Yes, that is correct. So that, to me, strikes me as, okay, so it's not an issue about capacity, it's an issue about demand. Mm -hmm. That, for me, is the where are the obvious sources of demand to use that material. There'll be all sorts of um, factors that are at play here, which is my understanding is typically some of the processes that it goes into now, people are concerned is downcycling, so it might get used once more, but that's about it. It's not in this perpetual loop of reuse. Um, and equally, it might, people may not get that much money or, you know, they have to invest in shredding or chipping that used tyre and then the offtake agreement and the value of that contract um, isn't of, you know, significant high economic value. So I think those are some of the challenges around tyres. And end-of-life tyres, particularly in respect to the retreading, will that be quarantined in the process or we've, where you can actually demonstrate that they can be value-added and there's no the internalisation? How do they fit within that? So for used passenger car tyres, um, no, the, the, the COAG agreement is clear that um, you can't send a whole used passenger tyre offshore, even if it, if it is intended for retreading. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was a, a, a unanimous agreement among states and territories and others. And so I think, and I don't want to sort of paraphrase them, but certainly my, or verbal them, certainly not, but my understanding is there have been concerns that um, it's easy to claim the intention is to send them offshore for retreading. Um, but as to whether or not that's what happens, it's harder to have that clear chain of custody and evidence. Yeah. But equally, the actual retread market, my understanding in Australia, is almost significantly zero. So mm-hmm. how do we keep them in Australia and drive that benefit in Australia? Now, we'll just quickly say with tyres, what COAG agreed was for aviation tyres and I believe truck and busing tyres, they are built for retreading. That's right. And... For example, an airline might have a leasing agreement with those tyres, but the retreading of those tyres are done overseas, and that's just the sort of the way the leasing arrangements are made. And, you know, it's, it's on the, I can't remember the number, but when someone told me, I was quite astounded that the, the limited number of times an airline tyre is allowed to um, land, so to speak, how many landings an aircraft tyre can have before it has to be taken off and retreaded. It's, very, it's a very low number. And so that system is such that Qantas will lease them from an airline tyre company, land the, the limited number of times you can, send them offshore, get them expertly treaded for specific purposes for aviation and bring them back in and put them on the plane. So given that circumstance, we said that that is allowed. So used airline, bus and truck tyres that are specifically designed for retreading and only get retreaded overseas, they are allowed. That's certainly different having uh, leasing of tyres. I've, I've heard leasing motor vehicles and leasing trucks and buses, but I've never heard of leasing of tyres. That's something you learn something new every day and I learn these podcasts something very, very different. Um, so tyres and glass are sorted. If we look at, uh, I suppose, the more complicated one, I think we'll, we'll, we'll move to paper and cardboard and then we'll come back to plastics because that that really is sort of a, 
a, a multi-tiered type uh, uh, material. Paper and cardboard, because we are net um, generators of the material, we literally do recover far greater quantities than we can possibly use locally. I think the latest numbers were something like 1.1 to 1.5 million. It depends on any given time, the volume differential. And you can't just start and build a paper mill overnight uh, with your existing. The paper and cardboard, the the opportunity in that space, Kristen? So, um, and, and that was a really interesting one that, you know, there was a lot of analysis, a lot of discussion with um, stakeholders, in, in particular local governments around the, the ban and the scope of the ban on paper and cardboard. And at the end, um, at the closer to COAG, so sort of, it was around January, February that, that the Commonwealth agreed to this position because it was put fairly strongly by just about everyone, was that if we banned the export of clean paper and cardboard, that could have fairly significant economic impacts on local governments and the contracts around curbside collection. Uh, and that's because, um, and I think the price has fluctuated significantly in the last 12 to 18 months, but a lot of the value that the contractors, the local governments, the MRF, the exporters get from clean paper and cardboard, um, that was the most valuable thing in the, in the yellow top bin. And so because of that value, they were able to subsidise some of the other products in your recycling bin. And if we were to no longer allow the export and the sale of clean paper and cardboard, that could significantly damage the, the economics of curbside recycling. And I think there is the ISRI, the international specifications that industry can meet those codes. What we're talking about here is banning the unsorted and the dirty material, which really is just putting it in a box and shipping it offshore. And that doesn't, doesn't help anyone. It goes to, it's not a proper environmental outcome. So what we've got to try and do is internalise that paper and cardboard volume. So to, and white, so white paper that is clean and baled and material because that's effectively value added. We can still we will still be able to export that material. Clean cardboard that was actually got the material. If we can't use it internally, and there are alternative markets, that will still be allowed to be exported. That's correct. Yes. Um, and now, given that the ban on the mixed paper and cardboard. Um, doesn't come into effect until 2024, um, it's, it's closer to that time we will be able to define exactly what we mean by mixed, what might be the contamination rates, what are the standards that we're going to kind of start to hone in on yeah. such that it should enable it to be much more obvious. Well, then, because, you know, I, th I think we can say without question, bailed box cardboard that's clean and of generally a single type, no question, you're not going to be banned. Same as single, you know, single clean white office paper, exactly, not going to ban that from export. But you'll start to get to categories where, well, it's some cardboard and some office paper and it's mostly clean, but I can't guarantee it's 100% <laughs> clean. So it's in, that, that's the grey area. That's the grey area. Exactly. And it's leading up to 24 when the ban on that starts that we'll have much more detail and work with industry stakeholders to work out what's a sensible line between what's the stuff that can keep being exported and what will we require further processing domestically before it can be exported. And I think also that what we're trying to do here is we are trying to change that culture. We are trying to actually upgrade uh, and encourage a greater, cleaner material to be recovered because it's the old story, you get rubbish in, you get rubbish out. And manufacturers need a cleaner material. We have to reduce contamination. I did a, uh, a recent podcast on organics and 
there is a real challenge with organic processing in Australia because of the quality that we're actually dealing with. So, I mean, at the end of this with all these bans, the best thing that come out is the fact that community, we talk about contamination and stop putting things that shouldn't be associated with it. Whatever we, and I say we as those who work on waste and recycling, whether you're industry or not, uh, or government, it's in all of our interests. The more we can help households, consumers recycle better, everybody wins. The tricky thing is, and, and you know, there's been some sort of market research done that, that clearly showed the moment it sounds like you're telling households they did a bad job in the first place and you need you need to start recycling right because you're not, mm. um, you run into difficulties and people take offence. Switch off. So it is a really yeah, tricky do. area, but absolutely, I think it's in everyone and in particular industry who collects and sorts, it's in our interest to make sure that we can do a better job about getting cleaner streams from the household level. I think this also provides an opportunity. Uh, the first curbside program was introduced back in the 80s, late late 80s, early 90s, and we've never really um, addressed a review of it. Of And we have so many different uh, permutations of it. We've now got glass in, glass out, plastic in, plastic out. Part of this opportunity with the export and once we get the structure right would be to actually go back and actually have a look at the curbside and try to get some commonality because until we get that commonality, we're really, we're, we've got to start where the material is actually generated from, I believe. What, what, what do you think about that? The National Action Plan itself, which um, we're not talking about today, but the ban is the first of seven targets under Correct. the National Waste Policy Action Plan. Other parts of that action plan very much talk about progressing work collectively, Commonwealth and states and territories on various harmonised approaches, including mm. for curbside mm. So there is further work to do in this space. But that said, um, it is difficult. So I think from the Commonwealth's perspective, we can certainly say, here's what we think is the gold standard. Here's what we think should be a harmonised approach. But we don't hold believers when it comes to curbside recycling. No. And so then the question is, okay, states and territories, okay, 500 local councils, are you going to follow this standard? Because that's going to be a cost for different councils and others to, to meet the standard if they're not already. Um, the overall outcome for the country will be better, but there'll be a cost for a number of players along that journey. So I think further work to demonstrate the benefits to everyone should help us get further along that harmonised approach. And I think with the National Waste Policy, there's opportunities there to be looking at other material diversion um, from landfill, et cetera. So as we do it, can and how can we use the existing infrastructure, the existing systems to actually um, optimise those as opposed to trying to do something new all the time? And, you know, we were leaders with curbside, there's no question there, but I think we haven't really fully comprehended the change in the waste composition, the household behaviours and the habits. You're right, I mean, it is a challenge, you know, 500-odd councils, but at some point I think we actually have to all have a mature conversation about well, where, where does this now land us? We've taken, we've got container refund schemes. We've got a whole lot of those value-add products. What does the world now look like um, in those bins? So, yes, another conversation down the track for another subject. Plastics, the chestnut of all, single resins, uh, milk bottles, soft drink bottles, container refund schemes. Where do we start? This is probably what we spent the most time with states and territories talking about, particularly the single polymer, because as you'd be aware, some of them have had long-standing container deposit schemes and others of them are in the process of bringing them in. 
And some of those, depending on the way they've been designed and the contractual arrangements have been designed, predicated on an ongoing international market for those single polymer HDP, PET, milk bottle, water bottle, shampoo bottle, et cetera, products being traded as a valuable commodity. So it, that, that took a lot of discussion and, and arguably negotiation at pretty senior levels to, to get to agreement at COAG for that one. Mm. Mixed plastics is, um, everyone agrees we've got mixed plastics. Um, you know, the, the fact that the Commonwealth held a national plastic summit, if you look at the PM speech, he talks, you know, he talks about that very low percentage rate of recycling of plastics out of the yellow top, topped bins. And it's, you know, as, as recent data from APCO and others has showed, it's really the soft mixed plastics that have the very low recycling rate. And a That's hard correct. cycle and a more expensive to recycle. So we're talking about the punnets, the plastic, the crinkly type plastics, or the light, the low range material. And that's again the, the, the issue. You've got um, PET, the soft drink bottles, the milk bottles. The part of it is already fait accompli. It's it's being diverted, but it's all that other material that gets very confusing to the punter about: is it a number one? Is it number three? What is it? And that's probably going to be our greatest challenge. Absolutely. And so, yeah, sort of less of a challenge around the PET, HDPE. I mean, I think some of the yes. announcements we've seen this year alone, you know, half a billion dollar investments in setting up new PET um, recycling plants in Australia that will come on stream, you know, in the next 18 months, two years. So mm. um, I personally am less worried, given I've got a little bit more insight at this point in time and, and hopefully the public will progressively soon, about the sorts of investments that the Commonwealth and states and territories and industry are looking to make in building in infrastructure and capacity around recycling. I'm less concerned that PET, that, that single polymer plastics will be a problem for us going forward. It is the challenge of mixed waste plastics that will be a harder one to crack. And, and you know, sometimes it's it's a fairly big, bold intervention such as the export ban. It's in place, it's agreed, we're legislating it now. Um, that will really kind of make it real for the people at the end of pot, uh, state and territory governments, local governments, industry itself, that need to now go, we can't send it offshore anymore. The landfill levies prohibitive or not ideal, and, and we don't want to be landfilling this stuff anyway. Now's an opportunity to invest in solutions for mixed waste plastic. Just touching on that, I guess, is the there's the back end where we ban it. I, one of the challenges we have is we don't have any control of what comes into the country because we have all these shipping containers and material people are buying from multitude of points. Um, is there are there markets internationally, particularly in Europe, where we push the the, the single resin or these 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 mixed plastic um, items, where we can actually change the input process? So we're not getting as many complicated, crunchy packets and stuff. Is that is is there an intervention mechanism opportunity there to actually do that? Because at the end of the day, if we've got no control at the front end, but we're trying to control the back end, there's going to be you've got a dichotomy there. You've got this interface challenge. Where I anticipate there might be, and you touched on it exactly, might be an opportunity to start getting more out positive outcomes in this space is sort of that work around coalitions. Now, whether that's international coalitions of governments um, or international coalitions of industry and APCO is, is the great example there and um, you know they're doing some work right now to look at sort of a bit of a Pacific model, so Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Island mm-hmm. countries, uh, initiative around better packaging outcomes for, yes. you know, 
uh, meeting EPCO targets around packaging and plastics in particular. So that's good. Um, we know things such as the Ellen MacArthur Foundation are looking at bringing together industry and governments around the world to make pledges to ensure that they're not proliferating um, the problem we're talking about by putting out more hard-to-recycle products. Individual companies are doing their own thing as well. Has that solved the problem? No, not suggesting at all it has. My personal expectation before um, COVID-19 came along had been we'd hopefully get a really good outcome at COAG earlier this year on the export ban, which we did. And as happens sort of later in the year when there's a lot of international summits, you know, G20, APEC, those sorts of things, leaders go off and they try and build support for things that have worked well in their own country or, or try and solve international challenges together. And uh, maybe, again, I've I'm, I'm got a history of working on climate change from 2004 where it was, you know, you were lucky if you found a climate change article on page 17 mm-hmm. of the Australian or, or any other. And then within a short space of years, it was the yeah. page of every newspaper and in every international meeting you went to. I can see that that early stage of international interest in plastics taking shape as it did on climate change in the early 2000s. So my own personal observation um, was that we're going to start seeing increasing international pressure, expectations, and then coalitions of the willing to solve some of those problems, to get right back to the challenge you raised, to stop so much difficult to recycle plastic coming into our country in the first place. I think COVID-19 has changed. Well, we know it's changed. Uh, We've got a new normal um, fundamentally, but what's actually brought a realisation, it's brought us all back to that a, a, a bigger picture, uh, that self-preservation um, issue you've got now, in people looking at their own backyard and saying, well, hang on, how do we actually change our lifestyle? How do we actually make the world a better place in light of this monster called COVID-19? So I think, I think you're right. I, I believe that we will see a greater conversation and it's not just about plastics I think we'll just see a greater focus on the environment which will then bring back once these bands kick in the whole conversation will start to get a lot more momentum um it'll get a significant I I think one of the challenges is going to be since we've uh, I think we now have the uh, after COVID it's my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong that COAG or the principles of COAG etc have also changed now going forward how do we keep the conversation at the ministerial level and the department level to ensure these bans and the alignment of the policies happen if there's no COAG framework? Or, or what's the proposal there? Is there any thought processes given to that, Kristen, going forward in this? Uh, so if I look at COAG, yes, the, the function and formulation of COAG is changing, but I would argue for the better. So the experience yes. that governments, Commonwealth and state and territory, have had around COVID and the immediacy and the solutions and outcome focus of the National Cabinet has worked well. Mm. So they want to take the learnings and the, and the what's worked well out of that and redefine COAG and rename it, et cetera, sure. but, but redefine the way it works. For me, that in no way suggests that you don't have the opportunity for states and territories and the Commonwealth to come together. My, my reading of the proposal is that they'll probably come together more. Um, mm-hmm. and I'll talk about whatever issues uh, are relevant and it will be very outcomes-focused. So that's that's great from my perspective. The other part that's interesting is um, the MEM, the Meeting of Environment Ministers. So that's where environment ministers from the Commonwealth and states and territories and and local government representatives come together, you know, semi-regularly to talk about 
shared objectives in the environment space and environment mm-hmm. space. Um, and so while COAG asked environment ministers and through MEM, the meeting of environment ministers, to prepare and agree that advice that went back to COAG, MEM itself is not a COAG body. It was a body that environment ministers agreed to set up in about 2014. And so that, you know, that's... That, that goes on in perpetuity. Exactly. So, well, you know, insofar as it's a useful body yeah. for, for, for ministers to convene, and, and um, I certainly know from Minister Lee's perspective, she intends to collaborate regularly with states and territory ministers, whether that's one-on-one, um, whether that's through the men, you know, it'll just be relevant for, for what they're wanting to discuss at this point in time. Uh, but there's no suggestion that men stop existing. Cool. Well, I think that's important because that's that understanding how that, that shared responsibility in delivering this actually can can go across the various um, boundaries once we open the borders eventually down the track. And just um, thing to note, and again, it's yeah. sort of bleeding out into broader waste policy areas. Mm. I mentioned the National Waste Action Plan before, which was agreed at MEM last year, and of the seven targets in it, the export ban is the first, and there's 80 actions that sit under it. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's an action plan that... Um, you know, the targets are out to 2030 and the 80 actions that are under it are sort of, you know, the first three years or so under under those 10-year targets. And so we need to deliver on those. We need to be able to report against those and check in and assess how we're meeting those. A lot of those are Commonwealth responsibilities, many are states and territories, some are industry or local government responsibilities. So that reporting and governance framework, the, that emphasis on making sure we're delivering what we promised to just in November last year will continue. And I th- I, I think full congratulations to the, the federal government for doing what they've done because there's been a lot of criticism for many years they were missing in action and on, on in waste policy and a whole lot of stuff. The fact that, that the government now is steering the conversation, is making decisions, we now have an assistant minister for waste you know, it's, we've got to focus on the issue. That is a huge, that is a huge opportunity for this country, and the fact that the feds are now leading that charge, and as you say, you've got that mem structure, does give hope that this is not just a, a thought bubble; it's actually a reality, and we're actually heading. Engage, I suppose. Before we wrap up, I'd like to get your views on engaging the community. How we bring a broader audience along now? It's you know. You, you know as well as I do, the industry's engaged, you're engaged with all the various groups, et cetera. I think one of the parts of the puzzle that has to be put together is that community engagement, isn't it? How the average householder, the generator, the procurer, the purchaser, how they play a part. How do we do that? I mean, it's complicated. It's the communicating that plays an important role as well. We're, yeah. So we're certainly, I mean, if I just look, and, and you touched on it, we now have an assistant minister for waste reduction. We held a national plastic summit. Ministers are, you know, waste and recycling is right up there as one of the top mm-hmm. priorities of the Envi- Commonwealth Environment Minister. It is. They're getting out, they're talking about it, they're showcasing successes, they're leaning in uh, where they need to um, if there's particular bad performance that the Commonwealth has some levers to pull. So I'm, I feel like insofar as where governments can be effective, the Commonwealth stepping into that role and, and very willing to do what it can. And very well too. Thank you. Well, I, I won't say thank you, but on their behalf. Um, no, it is. It's a very good, very good process. Great. Well, that, that's great to hear. I do ultimately think, though, um, actually, I'll go to community and then I'll touch on yes. industry's role. 
Um, I think community attitudes are already changing and there's a very clear desire of the want to do something good and, and to recycle, et cetera, in this space. Mm. A quick example, I've got a seven-year-old daughter. She got invited to a birthday party late last year and on the invitation to the, her friend's seventh birthday, it says, no plastic presents, please. That was written on the birthday invitation. The school she goes to, she's in year two, and, and a bunch of kids were bringing those squeezy yogurt, you know, single yes. yogurt squeezy things. And the teachers talked to all the kids and said, these are actually very difficult to recycle because they've got yogurt in them. Could you talk to your parents about buying a pot of yogurt and putting it in a Tupperware <laughs> container so you can bring it to school? So all the kids came home and were telling all the parents, you can't, you know, I don't want to take these single squeezy yogurts anymore to school. Like, I think you're getting intense goodwill and, and engagement at the community level. The challenge remains, as we talked about before, the confusion, the lack of consistency, that yes. stuff. My personal view is industry has a lot of skin in the game here and has a lot of power to influence here as well. And some of the industry bodies are already really stepping up and, and going out with some websites or apps that will help consumers to better understand their you know, what they should put in what bin or what they can recycle, what they can't, yeah. or where they can take something that they can't put in the yellow bin in their local council. So wrapping up, time frame going forward now and uh, what, are we, what are we facing now? What are the steps here, here on out? Yeah, well, going directly back to the export ban, uh, we are absolutely uh, foot on the pedal to finalise uh, the draft legislation to implement that export ban. And right. given the ban itself starts on the 1st of January, um, the sooner in the coming months that we can have that legislation put before Parliament, the better. And that's because yep. you introduce legislation and then you have all these sorts of processes where committees consider it and, and people take it away and spend the weeks or months and then come back and propose amendments, et cetera. So sure. we need to try and make sure we've got the legislation vetted down as early as possible so that it gives clarity to key affected stakeholders as early as we can. And then we're also building the system around implementing, so whether that's kind of requesting a licence to be able to export okay. the clients, the, the, the outreach and engagement that will need to happen to make sure the band's successful. So that's all absolute sort of top priority for us at a cool. Commonwealth bureaucrat stage right now. And I would expect that um, within months there'll be a much, much uh, more advanced set of information, documents, legislation uh, that's out for the public to see. Kristen, it's been a delight chatting with you. It's quite a complicated, complex process here and I think you've certainly, you've enlightened my eyes uh, about the, the steps that we're actually taking and the role the federal government is doing within this. Kristen, thanks very much. Um, we'll continue to talk and uh, onwards and upwards and good luck with getting the legislation through. Wonderful. Really appreciate the chance to chat. Thanks, Rick.